Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 14, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Now this is going to be one of those weeks that we're going to move along kind of carefully and deliberately because there are some vital spiritual principles to be extracted from even the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy 12. Now chapters 1 through 11 of Deuteronomy were in essence the introduction to what we're about to study in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. And the scholars have established the importance of this section by even giving it its own name, the Code of Deuteronomy. Now I think if we can come away with one supreme theme, one overriding God principle from our lesson last week. It's that when the Lord offers us an opportunity to join in His covenant, we do have a choice on the matter. It is not an offer that we can't refuse. The Lord asked Israel, Do you want to be my people and for me to be your God? If you do, then enter into my covenant that I sent before you. But if you don't want my covenant, then reject it and walk away. That's the choice that's set before every man whom Jehovah approaches. And by the way, you know, there would have been no calamitous penalty per se for Israel to choose to say no to God's offer. Israel simply would have been been denied special holy status and instead just been rejoined to the universal pool of nations from which they were plucked. From a heavenly and eternal standpoint, that would have been a pretty grave mistake to refuse the Lord's gracious offer. But from a limited earthly viewpoint, they would have fared no better or worse than any other nation or people. You know, it's the same For folks today, when we're given the opportunity to join Israel's covenant and the Messiah of that covenant, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. By our own free will, we can say yes or no. And the yes will forever alter our eternal future and in some ways our earthly experiences. A no will not generally damn us to poverty or sickness or unhappiness during our lifetimes, but rather a no will exclude us from a relationship with the Lord and the primarily spiritual blessings that come from it during both our natural life and then our spiritual eternity. But you know, there's a second part to that covenant pattern, and it is that acceptance of the Lord's covenant brings with it provisions. And those covenants have terms and conditions. If a man decides not to enter into a covenant relationship with God, then the terms of the covenant that he has been offered has no bearing on that man because he's not part of the covenant people. If he does decide to accept the offer, of the covenant relationship with God, then whoever does so indeed has an obligation to obey all the terms of that covenant. And just as that was the case in Moses' era, so it remains today and until heaven and earth passes away. 
Now, it'll be worth our while to take some time this week to set the stage for what we're about to study over the next several weeks because some ideas and concepts concepts that seem so normal and ordinary and even self-evident to us because it's all we've ever really known, these are really quite revolutionary in their nature. And so the impact of those ideas and concepts kind of gets lost. A couple of weeks ago, I used our American Constitution as an example, as an illustration of some principles and problems that men face when trying to govern our earthly societies. So I'll use that Constitution yet again to make a point because we're at least familiar with its, in, its intent and its structure. Now, our Constitution was based on an idea, or better, an ideal, of self-governance and self-responsibility that went along with it. Now, while the idea of democracy was revolutionary to some degree, various elements of it were previously attempted by ancient Rome in having a governmental body called the Senate that theoretically represented the people. Other elements of our Constitution were modeled after the famous Magna Carta, of the 13th century, which limited the power of the king such that he was supposed to obey the established laws of the kingdom just as the common citizens had to. So our constitution was really but another, though very significant, step towards an ideal of democratic self-rule. It wasn't a complete departure from everything that had ever been thought of or attempted before. Yet as radical as our Constitution was seen by many in the year of its establishment, it cannot begin to describe the unprecedented detour taken by the covenant of Mount Sinai from all that had been known up to that point in history, particularly as it pertained to social justice. Because up to this point, there had been only one source of law and justice for any of Earth's societies, the law and justice as declared by its king. The concept first introduced to the Israelites out in the wilderness that a god, instead of a human king, would issue this amazing system of laws and ordinances and rituals by which even the ultimate ruler of the government was bound boggled the ancient mind. And as happens in such cases of radical departure from the norm, you know, it often doesn't even feel real to most people. It it seems rather like a fantasy or something that's far from from our grasp, like like a dream or a vision. And it's so hard to put it into practice. It was also rather easy to misinterpret what was meant because there was so little about so many of these new concepts in the covenant of Mount Sinai that an Israelite could even relate to. Often it was just easier to mix in a few elements of the law of Moses with ways and customs that they'd always practiced. Perhaps to look at what other cultures that surrounded them did, modify things a little bit. You know, and up to the time of Moses, and still largely so within religions of the world, except maybe for Judeo-Christianity, people were in constant search 
for what the gods demanded of them. And since they believed that most things that happened to them were the consequences of decisions by some god or another, the people desperately wanted to know which god had intervened in their life, why that god chose to do what he or she did. Was there any way to appease or manipulate that god? But almost universally, it was all for naught. Because it was understood that the gods and their desires were generally unknowable. Serendipity ruled. The whims of the gods controlled everyone and everything. There was little to no logic for what these gods decided, except that like for a typical earthly monarch, you could bet the motives were self-centered. I tell you frankly, we have no way to identify with this ancient mindset unless we've perhaps been deeply involved in a non-Judeo-Christian society. But since most of us have not been raised up in that kind of environment, let me tell you in a nutshell that life was always uneasy because hanging over your head was the knowledge that some god or another could disrupt your existence at any instant and you might never know why or what you had done to bring that God's wrath upon you. It, it, it was a truly terrible predicament. Now, I recently ran across an ancient poem that dates back to the time of Abraham, roughly 2000 B.C. And segments of this poem have been incorporated into the records of several different ancient societies over a period of many centuries, so highly regarded was it that it poignantly expressed the common plight of the human race across all cultural boundaries and eras. Now, I'm going to take up more time than I probably ought to and read a good portion of this to you because it so soberly captures the dilemma that the whole known world lived in, and much of it still does, who do not know the one true God. My, my hope is that two things will be accomplished by our looking at this 4,000-year-old tome. First, that it helps those studying Torah to understand the mindset and psyche of the ancient world that Moses and these Hebrews of the Exodus lived in, a mindset that infected their thinking with such terribly false beliefs. And therefore, how difficult it was for these Hebrew refugees from Egypt to grasp and assimilate that which Jehovah was offering to them. And second, so you can see how incredibly blessed and fortunate we are that God has a nature and the attributes that he does and that he, is, has, he has so graciously made himself and his laws and his commands known to us. See, God possesses a character with attributes that we, we accept just very matter of fact. We take it for granted. But these attributes were unthinkable, even confusing, for the people of that era. It was such a radical departure from what they and the rest of the world had practiced. This 4,000-year-old anonymous poem was titled, The Prayer to Every God. 
Let me read it to you, at least parts of it. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted towards me. May the God who was not known be quieted towards me. May the goddess who was not known be quieted towards me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted towards me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted towards me. May the heart of my God be quieted towards me. May the heart of my goddess be quieted towards me. May my God and my goddess be quieted towards me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted towards me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted towards me. In ignorance I have eaten that forbidden of my God. In ignorance I have set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. O Lord, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. O my God, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. O my goddess, my transgressions are many, my so great are my sins. O God, whom I do not know or know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. O my goddess, whom I do not know or I might know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgressions I have committed, I don't know. The sin I have done, indeed, I don't know. The forbidden things I've done, the prohibited place on which I've set foot, indeed, I don't know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God in the rage of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me ill. The God whom I know or don't know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or don't know has placed suffering upon me. And although I'm constantly looking for help, nobody takes me by the hand. When I weep, the goddess and goddess and, uh, goddesses and gods don't come to my side. I utter laments. Nobody hears me. I'm troubled, I'm overwhelmed, I cannot see. Oh my God, merciful one, I address this prayer to you, ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of my goddess, I crawl before you. How long, oh my goddess, whom I know or don't know, before your hostile heart will be quieted? Man is dumb, he knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he doesn't even know. O oh Lord, don't cast your servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin that I've done, turn into goodness. The transgression that I have committed, let the wind carry it away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. Oh my God, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh my goddess. My transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O oh God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O oh my goddess, whom I know or do not know, transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I'll sing your praise. May your heart, like the heart of a real mother, be quieted towards me. Like a real mother and a real father may be quieted towards me. And it goes on and on. Is that not both the most heartbreaking and depressing thing you've ever heard? It expresses the utterly hopeless condition of mankind and the pathetic condition of the world's religious systems, past and present, to do anything about it. But it was this condition that the Hebrews, as well as everybody else on planet Earth, were born into. It expresses how all humanity looked at spirituality in general and how their lives 
were seen as nothing but worthless pawns for these gods. Now here comes along this God, this Yehovah, and he throws the mother of all curveballs at the world through Moses and through Israel. And he tells them exactly who he is. He tells them exactly what he regards as good and evil and what he expects of every man and woman who loves him. He even commits himself to operate within the bounds of his own unchanging justice system that he's now establishing with Israel. He says that there is no other God to even consider and therefore not to bow down to or fear that which doesn't exist. And that he expects obedience to him to be done out of love, out of gratitude, not not fear or paranoia. And why? Because he loved mankind first. Because he created us. He cares about the tiniest element of our lives and he wants a personal relationship with each of them, each of us. The Lord even says that these principles he's given to Israel form the foundation of the whole universe. They've always been. They will always be. They can count on it. They can count on him staying the same from eternity past to eternity future. Nothing could be further away from the hopelessness of all mankind as expressed in that ancient poem than what the Lord God offered to Israel. How does a society, or even one lone individual, transition from that kind of desperate thinking expressed within this poem and universally to be understood for things to be just that way, just comprehending the laws and the love of God and do this almost overnight? Answer, you don't and you can't. So Israel really didn't get it. It flew in the face of everything they thought they knew. They could hear the words, but it didn't translate to anything understandable. So they fouled up. They slid back. They repented. They backslid some more. They adopted ways that seemed right to them. They committed apostasy. They had reformations. And they fell away again. In this constant cycle that at one moment veered towards God and the next moment dove away from Him. Moses witnessed Israel at its best and its worst over those four decades. It must have been daunting and frustrating for this appointed leader, but before he died, he spent what I'm sure were several days, if not weeks, expounding this sermon that we call Deuteronomy on the mountains of Moab about the astounding, if not downright unbelievable, covenant of relationship that the creator of all things, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, had made with this ragtag group of people who had done nothing to even merit it. This is what we're reading in Deuteronomy. This is the condition of the Hebrew thinking and the beliefs that are trying to be overcome. 
We modern believers need to have the greatest empathy and understanding for these Hebrews instead of the contempt that's more typical for what seems like their constant failures and returns to wickedness that we read about in the Bible. We also need to understand why the people of Israel didn't and a lot of Orthodox Jews today don't view these laws of God as a burden as most Christians see it. See, the law was and remains their greatest joy because at last, here is a God who reveals himself. He makes clear his character and his nature, his demands and his intentions, and his rules and his regulations. Finally, no more wondering about some unknown God that might pop up to interfere in your life. No more despair about what the world of the gods might do to you just for their own pleasure. Do you want a relationship with the real God? Well, says Moses, here is a God who is, who is, who is real, and this is how you go about establishing that relationship. And it's not going to change. It's not going to change tomorrow, the next day, or forever. And we today are the beneficiaries of all that Israel endured as they attempted to assimilate the awesome, otherworldly ways of God. Is it any wonder that St. Paul tells Gentiles not to boast because of our profound relationship with God. A relationship that comes as a result of our Jewish Messiah whose advent came within the context of Hebrew history. And is it any wonder that Paul also tells us it's our duty and our debt as believers to repay the Jewish people in a tangible way for delivering to us the word both in stone and in flesh just as it was transmitted to them. Let's keep all this in mind now as we live out our daily existence and as we now begin to read Deuteronomy chapter 12 together. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Here are the laws and rulings you are to observe and obey in the land that Adonai, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live on earth. You must destroy all the places where the nations you are dispossessing serve their gods, whether on high mountains, hills, or under some leafy tree. Break down their altars, smash their standing stones to pieces, burn up their sacred poles, completely cut down the carved images of their gods, exterminate their name from that place. But you're not a treat. You're not to treat Adonai your God this way. Rather, you are to come to the place where Adonai your God will put his name. He will choose it from all your tribes, and you will seek out that place, which is where he will live, and go there. You will bring there your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tents that you set aside for Adonai. The offerings that you give, the offerings you have vowed, your voluntary offerings, and the firstborn of your cattle and your sheep, there you will eat in the presence of Adonai your God and you will rejoice over everything you've set out to do 
you and your households, in which Adonai your God has blessed you. You will not do the things the way we do them here today, where everyone does what's right in his own opinion, because you haven't yet arrived at the rest and inheritance which Adonai your God is giving you. But when you cross the Jordan, and you live in the land Adonai your God is having you inherit, and he gives you rest from all your surrounding enemies so that you are living in safety, then you will bring all that I'm ordering you to the place Adonai your God chooses to have his name live. Your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tents, the offering from your hand, all your best possessions that you dedicate to Adonai, and you will rejoice in the presence of Adonai your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, and the Levites staying with you, inasmuch as he has no share or inheritance with you. Be careful not to offer your burnt offerings just anywhere you see. Do it in the place Adonai will choose in one of your tribal territories. There is where you are to offer your burnt offerings and do everything I order you to do. However, you may eat and slaughter meat wherever you live, whatever you want it, in keeping with the degree to which Adonai your God has blessed you. The unclean and the clean may eat it, as if it were gazelle or deer, but don't eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You're not to eat on your own property the tenth of your grain, new wine, or olive oil that you set aside for Adonai, or the firstborn of your cattle or sheep, or anything you have vowed, or your voluntary offering, or the offering from your hand. No, you're not to eat these in the presence of Adonai your God, in the place Adonai your God will choose. You and your sons, daughters, male and female slaves, and the Levite who is your guest, and you are to rejoice before Adonai your God in everything you undertake to do. As long as you're living on your property... Take care not to abandon the Levites. When Adonai your God expands your territory as he's promised you and you say, I want to eat meat, simply because you want to eat meat, then you can eat as much as you want. If the place where Adonai your God chooses to place his name is too far away from you, then you're to slaughter animals from your cattle or sheep which Adonai has given you and eat them on your own property as much as you want. Eat it as you would gazelle or deer. The unclean and clean alike may eat it. Just take care not to eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you are not to eat the life with the meat. Don't eat it. Pour it on the ground like water, but do not eat it, so that things will go well with you and with your children after you as you do what Adonai sees as right. Only the things set aside for God which you have and the vows you have vowed to make you must take and go to the place which Adonai will choose. There you will offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood, on the altar of Adonai your God. The blood of your sacrifices is to be poured out on the altar of Adonai your God and you will eat the meat. Obey and pay attention to everything I'm ordering you to do so that things will go well with you and with your descendants after you forever as you do what Adonai sees as good and right. When Adonai your God has cut off ahead of you the nations you are entering in order to dispossess, and when you have dispossessed them and are living in their land, be careful. After they have been destroyed ahead of you, don't be trapped into following them, so that you inquire after their gods and ask, how did these nations serve their gods? I want to do the same. You must not do this to Adonai your God, for they have done to their gods all the abominations that Adonai hates. They even burn up their sons and daughters in the fire for their gods. A major change is about to occur. 
Israel's no longer going to be a cohesive, though large group of people who live carefully arranged around a, a centralized sanctuary known as the Wilderness Tabernacle. A sanctuary that as they relocate, it goes with them. Instead, as they cross the Jordan River and take possession of the Promised Land, they're going to be dispersed, according to tribe and clan, over several thousand square miles of Canaan into assigned and separate districts. And with this rather drastic change in their daily living conditions, the logical and practical question that must be answered for the citizens of Israel is, so where do we worship and sacrifice? After all, if the requirement remained that only one place is permitted for worship and sacrifice, then by definition, that place is going to be nearby for some tribes of Israel and far away in a long journey for most of the others. The subject of the central and the single sanctuary is the driving force behind the laws and precedents that we're going to see set down over the next several chapters. And concern over the myriad of false gods and their places of sacrifice that are scattered all around Canaan has something to do with the decisions that resulted in somewhat altered rules and regulations. Now let me also point out then another major change is in process. Israel isn't going to be a Bedouin-type society that moves around the desert from oasis to oasis. But it's about to become a settled agrarian society, just as the laws given through Moses on Mount Sinai have anticipated. After all, the seven biblical feasts are primarily, at least from an earthly point of view, agricultural feasts which certainly are not central or even possible to observe within a society of wandering herdsmen. Now we need to take notice of this process because the reality of history is that societies change and evolve over time. And therefore we need to understand these deep principles behind God's justice system so that we can be true to those abiding principles within the circumstances that every new generation seems to face. The first verse of chapter 12 makes it clear that the rulings that are about to come applies to their taking possession of Canaan. And that rule number one is that all shrines and altars and temples and places of worship of the Canaanite gods are to be destroyed. Although it zooms by us in only two verses, there's a rather good description of the common characteristics of the places where these Canaanites worshipped. Verse 2 speaks of high mountains and hills and underneath trees. Then verse 3 speaks of the kinds of items that marked those places of worship. Altars, standing stones, sacred poles, carved images of their gods. Now we've talked about the ancient pagan worship practices before. But since it is brought before us front and center again, let me take just a moment to summarize and review. Whenever possible, an altar of sacrifice was located upon the highest local place. Even if it was just a mound. 
because it was believed that the gods generally preferred to reside on mountaintops. In fact, the mystery of the meaning of one of the earliest biblical titles for God, El Shaddai, has only recently been solved. Due to some breakthroughs in deciphering the Akkadian and the Ugarit languages, several ancient Hebrew terms are now clearly defined because it's long been known that Akkadian and Ugarit were the language out of, languages out of which the Hebrew was born. Okay. Shaddai means mountain. So El Shaddai means God of the mountain. Right. Naturally, that fits with the mindset of all the world's inhabitants in earliest biblical times. And it also fits with the incident when God introduces himself to Jacob as El Shaddai, the God of the mountain, because Jacob is walking through some mountains on his way to Mesopotamia at the time. Now, a high place simply indicated that a location is higher in altitude than what surrounded it. In addition, of course, it could demeaning it's a place of worship of a god. And if a tribe resided on a flat desert plain, a high place for them might just be a little pile of earth and stones no more than three or four feet high off the desert floor. If one was in an area of low rolling hills, then the high place was the highest of the nearby hills that was reasonably accessible. If, if one was in a more mountainous area, then generally the high place had to be erected on the highest of the nearby peaks. We find the Hebrews engaging in exactly the same sort of practice. In the area of Jerusalem, for instance, Mount Moriah is generally the high point of the city. Technically, the Mount of Olives is outside of Jerusalem. Okay, And so the temple to God was erected there. But we also see mentioned in verse 2 about altars being erected underneath trees. It was common among the pagan religions to build an altar of sacrifice in a grove of evergreen trees. Or they would even plant a grove of trees around an altar. The reason was very simple. Evergreen trees represented fertility. And sacrifices for fertility were among the most common of all pagan sacrifices. A term we'll occasionally run across in the Bible is Asherah. And Asherah literally means grove, like an olive grove. Sometimes Asherah is translated as pole. And here we are, as pole. Except that where it was not possible or practical... To have a tree planted, there might have been a grove of poles, wooden dead tree trunks, right, that represented the trees. Another term we'll run across is Ashtaroth, which is the formal name of the fertility goddess. As you can readily see, the two terms Asherah and Ashtaroth are very related. Around these Asherah, these tree groves, in addition to their altars of sacrifices, they would at times place a carved pole. All right? Simply envision a totem pole. The totem poles we're familiar with are a little bit more elaborate than uh, what was typically carved in the ancient Middle East, but the purpose was the same. 
they marked that particular place, and an altar was always built there, as a place to sacrifice to specific gods and goddesses represented in that carved pole. The standing stones, like these, are also sometimes called pillars. But our modern way of thinking, the word pillar gives us the wrong impression. We tend to think of these marvelously tall, cylindrical, decorated stone pillars of a Roman building, but that's not what it was talking about. A standing stone was literally a large, flat stone set upright and sometimes with wording chiseled into it and often is not had no markings on it at all. The stone was generally used in its most natural state. A stone cutter did not shape it. Often it was a monument that simply says that something important took place at that spot. Other pagan religions saw the symbol of their god in that stone, and and it was an object of worship. Now, key to all this is grasping that anybody could build an altar or a shrine to their god anywhere without divine authorization. The Lord, uh, rather, the land of Canaan was absolutely peppered with altars and poles and sacred groves dedicated to various gods. Single families would build their own private altars. Towns would build their own communal altars. Kings would erect their own and more elaborate altars. And naturally these altars would be constructed nearby for the sake of convenience. The Israelites were very aware of all this because it was standard practice in the entire known world at that time. And the reason that God, through Moses, is going through all this detail about altars and shrines is because the Hebrews would have naturally assumed, without giving it a second thought, that they would do the same thing as everybody else. That they would build altars and groves to Yehovah at multiple locations, whatever was nearest to you, because there was going to be a lot of settlements now, all over Canaan, a lot of Israeli settlements. Therefore, in verse 4, Israel is instructed not to worship Yehovah in this manner, groves, trees, totem poles. Rather, says the Lord, there's going to be a certain place where worship of the Lord is to be located, meaning the place where the tabernacle is going to be erected and sacrificing is going to happen. And no place else. And only at this single central place are the twelve tribes of Israel to journey and bring their offerings and tithes and their sacrificial animals. And one of the things being legislated in this instruction is against something. And this something was the standard operating procedure for that era. The co-location of a place of worship and sacrifice of one God with the place of worship and sacrifice to a different God. An altar was not a high place where somebody could bring a sacrifice and just offer it to any God. It wasn't a communal barbecue. Every pagan altar in every high place was dedicated to a certain named God or goddess. But building an altar was hard work, time-consuming, and people moved in and out of areas, and conquerors came and went and brought with them their own set of gods. And so a local god's popularity would rise and fall. Usually an existing altar or high place was just rededicated from one god to the next god. 
Yehovah says Israel's not to do that for him. We see examples of this today. Go to Spain. All right, and take a look at churches that have been converted from mosques. Mosques that were originally churches and all over the place. You see this. One of the things that I find laughable is this concept that someday they're going to build the new holy temple next to the Dome of the Rock shrine. Do you think God is going to share that temple mount with a false god? It isn't going to happen. He never has. He never will. They may try it foolishly. It isn't going to work. Now let me throw out a couple of points to ponder and then we'll wrap things up while connecting all this to God's plan for mankind. Just like in the wilderness where there was but one place for all Israel to sacrifice, so it's going to be in Canaan. But the reason for this really isn't given. It could be as simple as God wanting things to operate in the exact opposite of what all the pagan religions were doing. What we do know for sure is that the central uh, central sanctuary, that wilderness tabernacle, got moved on several occasions to different places in Israel, and there didn't seem to be any real objection by God to these moves of the sacred tent sanctuary. And another point concerns this command to topple and destroy all the high places of the Canaanite gods. Now this command, completely real, absolutely meant to be carried out, has to fall into the same category of being a heavenly ideal. Just as the territorial boundaries that the Lord has laid out to encompass all of his holy land were a heavenly ideal. Israel to this day has never fully possessed all that ideal territory. What's an ideal? It's the expression of perfection. It's the notion of the ultimate state that something can attain. Ideals, humanly speaking, are rarely, if ever, achieved. God's ideals are going to all be achieved. In reality, Israel never attained the ability to so exercise control over Canaan as to destroy every last pagan shrine and altar and Asherah. Even during the powerful reigns of David and then his son Solomon, which, by the way, were considered the zenith of Israeli national power, it was never accomplished. Yet we also can conclude that neither of these ideals failed to occur because the Lord was unable, nor because the goal wasn't seriously attainable, but because Jehovah made Israel's success in achieving these goals contingent on their obedience to him. That's exactly what we've been reading about. And we're going to see in coming chapters and coming books of the Old Testament, Israel stumbled greatly in that regard, and therefore the fulfillment of these ideals that God offered to them have been deferred. And they're not going to be attained until Messiah comes again and rules over all the earth. Now I point this out because if there's one major reason for us even needing a Messiah, 
to carry out God's plan. It is that the fullness for realizing God's ideals could not be brought in while depraved men still rule the world. That may sound like just another nice Christian platitude, but the truth is, if man could realistically have followed all of God's commands, that a Messiah wouldn't even have been necessary. But with the fall of Adam from his state of being created as the ideal man, a Messiah became the only route to fulfillment of these heavenly ideals because man now knew evil. And you know what? We liked it. But understand, God's commands don't fail. God's words didn't and don't fall short. God's creatures fail. And the creatures I'm talking about, the ones I'm speaking of, are all humans, not just Israelites. The only creatures with a free will that approximates the free will that the Lord possesses. Further, the covenant of Moses was not faulty. Men were faulty. Therefore, with the advent of Messiah 2,000 years ago, that covenant was renewed, as it said in Jeremiah 31, but the one who administered the covenant shifted from Moses to Jesus. Moses was a faulty man. Therefore, he was a faulty mediator. Yeshua was a faultless man, the ideal man, and therefore a faultless mediator. Until that ideal man, the Messiah Jesus, who is also God, returns, until he rids the world of every human opposes God, until the evil one who tempts and accuses mankind is locked away, and until our king rules in glory and perfection without tolerance for sin, the ideals of God are not ever going to be met on earth. Yet just as when the Lord laid out the Torah for Israel and he told them it was not too hard for them. It was not too hard for them. Neither is it too hard for us as believers. At least in the ideal sense. We were created with the ability to physically accomplish these laws and commands of the Lord. But with the fall into sin of our human father... Adam, it sealed our fate as being a race of failed creatures that just couldn't bring about God's ideals. But Messiah Yeshua can and he will. We'll continue in Deuteronomy 12 next week.